We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. From the Clark Ford Studio in Oxford, Mississippi, MBW Digital proudly presents the Oxford Exxon Podcast. I'd say thanks for tuning in. But why am I going to give you a round of applause for something you're supposed to do, to be frank? And now, here are your hosts, Chase Parham. And broadcast school has really paid off. And Neil McCready. I deserve to be on TV. Welcome into the MPW Digital postgame show presented by Walk-On Sports Bistro. Chase Parham, Brian Rippey. Here with you, if you're watching the video, this will also be a podcast, so you can find it in either way, whether it be an audio or video version for you as we uh, recap Ole Miss and Liberty, the Rebels 27, the Flames 14. We'll talk about stuff on the field. We'll talk about stuff on social media. Also, as you can tell, we are not in the Clark Ford studio, Neil out of town today. So uh, in case like a dog barks or a UPS guy comes up, I can't help it. So it is what it is as we uh, we take on the afternoon here I am at least watching uh, Auburn and Texas A&M. They're in the first quarter right now. I can only see a bare wall behind Rippey, so I don't know what he's doing otherwise. But uh, that's where we're at. That's the setup as he is uh, in the Metroplex. I am here in uh, in Oxford, obviously. Ole Miss 27, Liberty 14. Have you enjoyed the, the, the day of football on your couch so far? Yeah, I didn't catch much of the other early slate. I mean, I had some rotating stuff going on on the computer, but uh, – I kind of got back in the swing of things with uh, kind of the pains and groans of that nobody cares about of like covering games with the whole. So I was clearly locked in the Ole Miss game, did some writing at halftime. But that's the first time in a while where I've written something and had to erase it and change it based on what happened at the game. And I forgot just the terrible annoyance that that can be uh, doing the observations that are up on the board right now. But, yeah, it was it was, I guess, as enjoyable as possible to watch Ole Miss and Liberty play. It was fine. Yeah, you know, I uh, I did not start writing at all until about 10 minutes left in the game because I was planning to write a complete defensive story after the way they were getting out of getting after Malik Willis. <clears throat> Sorry, they uh they sacked him nine times on the day. Sam Williams gets uh, a couple himself. He uh now has the Ole Miss modern day sack record of 10 and a half for a season, and there's still four games remaining, assuming that he plays in the bowl game. So uh, a big year from that standpoint for Sam Williams, who's trying to make a lot of money right now, get consistent and uh, and and go in the NFL draft here uh, here soon. He did come off the field kind of late with a uh, what would appear to be favoring his left hip. So we'll see if we get any information on that. See what anybody says about the the hip injury there for uh, for Williams. But I mean, they just attacked Malik Willis. We're going to be kind of all over the place. I've got some stuff about the game, stuff about other stuff as well. 
But, um, you know, early on, Ole Miss sacks Willis four times in the first 16 plays. They have the fifth sack on the first play of the second quarter. Um, they get out to a 17-0 lead during this stretch. And even in the second half, as Liberty was able to score a couple drives to open the half, they were able to really run the ball between the tackles. We'll talk about talk about that more as we uh, as we go on. But the pass rush between Williams and Cedric Johnson, they annihilated Willis to the point that he was really ineffective and kind of a non-factor throwing the football. Um, when I when I look at it here, I mean him sixteen of twenty five. He was he was sixty four percent, but that's only one hundred and seventy three yards. He throws three interceptions, including the game clincher, as they were trying to cut it within a score for an onside kick there late in the game, and instead it, it locked it up for the Rebels. I was impressed with him, but I don't really know what I think because, frankly, they couldn't protect him. That left tackle had no chance at all against Sam Williams whatsoever, and I think he's pretty good throwing the football, but I didn't come out of that going, hey, what, if I'm a general manager, I can't overlook him with some top five pick. Anything you read about him coming into the week, and I tried to watch some of Liberty's games throughout the week, but to be honest, I didn't do like a deep dive, and I'm not a draft guy by any stretch, but it seemed like everything you read on him, good runner, good thrower, a lot of arm talent, but decision-making and ball security were comp- like were probably some weaknesses, and I think that was I think that was showed in both, right? He had the fumble that I guess Liberty ended up getting back on top of. The first pick to A.J. Finley, whatever it was down the right sideline, just looked like a – pump and go and he was going to throw that sucker no matter what mm-hmm. it was a bad decision but I was again it's difficult to evaluate him because of everything around him his receivers aren't good they made the old Miss receivers look somewhat competent which is at this rate is a little bit difficult to do and his offensive line couldn't block but I took away two things you know when he had time and like had kind of the throws there he made two or three really impressive throws that were you know pretty much just kind of seeds and he's a tough kid. I mean, he got smoked on three yeah. or four occasions and really just popped back up. And I don't know what NFL scouts and GMs put into that, but I was impressed by his toughness by continuing to get up and play because, you know, he could have rolled over a bit and gotten frustrated and just kind of gone through the motions in the second half, but he was actually pretty, pretty good in the second half. There is something from an NFL standpoint to watching him not only get up, but keep really positive body language with his teammates kind of sucking around him for the most part. Cause I mean, he is absolutely the best player on the team and he, you know, he responded to freeze when he pulled him off to the side on the sidelines and different things. I mean, he really did kind of stay locked in the game and I'm not at all surprised that he lights up their opponents uh, on a weekend week out basis and who they play from that standpoint. I mean, he, he's the best player on the field um, pretty much every time he's on it. He wasn't today, but um, overall he was fine. You know, freeze, it went as I, uh, as I expected kind of with him. I mean, Frankly, it was a non-factor that he was back in Oxford until the post-game with social media stuff that we'll get into here in a, here, here in a little bit. But otherwise, I thought it would be kind of a ho-hum reunion, and it absolutely was a ho-hum reunion. I mean, it, out of the top five storylines from the day, none of them really include Hugh Freeze as far as actually coaching the football game. Yeah, it was just an – I don't even know if it was relevant enough to call it awkward, but it was just a very awkward subplot that was, like you mentioned, ended up being pretty, up, pretty low on the totem pole. I don't, I didn't turn it on in time. I don't even know if they showed it to like get the pregame, what the reception was. Um, I turned on literally two seconds for a kick. So I didn't see that. I don't really know what that went like, but I imagine he, it was somewhat mixed. I mean, he, I think he deserves a mixed reaction. There was a lot of good in his years at Ole Miss and also a lot of bad and to treat it all bad or all good. I don't think is a hundred percent fair, but yeah, I think that went exactly how I thought it did. I think Hugh Freeze will probably be more fa- Mem- can't talk today 
remembered more favorably with time because I think that's just kind of what we do as humans. As the years go by, you tend to remember the good more than the bad. And so I think for whatever reason comes back to Vaught Hemingway in 10 years, maybe there's a little something more, but like you mentioned, it was just kind of irrelevant. Yeah, you know, then you look at Ole Miss, and I, I wrote about this. They get through the game. They win. They cover the Vegas line. Um, they, they win by 13. It, it went – it's one of the few times this year it went exactly how I thought it would go. I thought Ole Miss would keep a lead for the most part the entire football game, that Liberty would kind of sort of make it interesting, but not enough to make anybody lose any fingernails as it came down the stretch. Because um, Ole Miss is just so walking wounded right now. So there's a couple different things to this. One, they got the win. It doesn't look like they had anybody injure themselves further on the offensive side of the ball. They cannot handle that. You look at the week that they just had nine of their 11 starters miss Wednesday's practice. The only two opening day starters on offense that practiced on Wednesday were uh, Jeremy James and Nick Broker, the two tackles. Nobody else did. Uh, Corral stayed upright. He made really good decisions with his feet. He didn't, he didn't allow himself to get hit in the open field at all today. He also was incredibly athletic and, and, and accurate with his, with his passing. I mean, he went 20 of 27. He threw a touchdown, 324 yards, and that included a couple of drops, including that early one by Dennis that would have been a big gainer across the middle of the field. So he, uh, he hit a lot of different targets. He um, did things well. And I thought that considering all the receivers that he's having to throw to, the fact that they don't have Drummond, that they don't have Mingo, that, that, that uh, Sanders is hobbled and, and not playing overly well right now from a consistent standpoint – his timing is pretty good. I mean, you look at it today, Dennis turned six, six, six catches and nine targets into 126 yards and a touchdown. Plumley had, I think, seven catches for like 110 on eight targets, something like that. Corral has done a really good job, not just mixing in so many other guys, but making it look fairly effective. Now, they've got to do better in the second half. Ole Miss, Ole Miss has not scored a touchdown in the second half of a football game in two weeks. That's a, that's a recipe that will not work next week against the Aggies as we get to that here in a little bit. But, um, you know, overall, I thought Corral was really good. Um, I know it's a little broken record, but he's always going to give you a chance. He did nothing to make himself worse today. He had a hell of a game. He carried the team. And we talk about Willis, but, you know, Corral, too, from a leadership standpoint, he's constantly talking to his wide receivers. He's constantly talking to his offensive linemen. He's constantly talking to the defense. I mean, he – he lifted them up today. I thought even kind of defensively with just some of his chatter on, on the sidelines because there was a moment where it really did kind of get funny for a second. Liberty had scored two straight possessions in the second half. Um, Ole Miss missed that kick that would have put them up by three scores there when Costa misses the 41-yarder and made you have to rewrite a little bit um, after, after that today. And it sort of settled. I, you know, Corral kind of got everybody back up. He got some energy back going on the sidelines from that point. If nothing else, they were able to stall the momentum. They never really got it back. They were never in crazy danger. But I thought that was the pivotal moment where it could have gotten really, really squirrely, and instead Ole Miss was able to kind of stabilize that thing from there. Yeah, that really was an important point in the game. And the defense wasn't, didn't play perfectly today, but in their defense, they pitched a shutout in the first half, and the <laughs> offense did add, didn't add on at all in the second half. But, again, you mentioned they – they got to like when you're talking about like the threshold of either resting starters or this game getting completely out of control and getting squirrely, as you mentioned, they kind of reached like the precipice of both, but couldn't quite get over the edge. Right. If you get a stop to start the second half and then put punch in one more touchdown, 31, nothing, you're probably talking about maybe getting some guys out of the game and just sitting on the football and trying to possess it for a long period of time. And then the other end of that was to your, what you just outlined after the, they score the first two drives of the second half. It's 27-14. Costa misses a kick as I'm writing a note about how he's missed 
uh, as many PATs as he has kicks inside 50 or more PATs than he has kicks inside 50. And then you're like, oh boy. And then they get a stop. I thought the fourth down uh, stop on, I guess that was early in the fourth quarter, which ended up probably being the biggest play of the game was huge. So they did enough to win, even though it wasn't always perfect between the 20s. With regard to Corral, you're right. And to add on to your timing point, not only is it who he's throwing to, but the guy that we spent all the preseason writing those nice stories about how he has this rapport with Braylon Sanders has been just in and out. Like he played today, but I don't think maybe I just didn't pay attention close enough to the receivers, but I tried to, it wasn't the full he's out there on every possession thing. He was very limited. I, apparently he played at Auburn four snaps last week. Uh, you'd have to show me those because I didn't see him out there at all. So even the guys that he like kind of is supposed to have timing with have gone in and out. And then, I mean, he threw six passes or six receptions to his former backup. So, you know, for him to go 20 to 27 for 324, no turnovers was really remarkable considering everything going on around him, injuries on the interior offensive line, as bad as it is injuries wise for Ole Miss, it is sort of fortunate that out of the nine injuries, uh, the two tackles are healthy because I think that's where they could really, really have gotten in trouble in terms of it, mm -hmm. the ship sinking from an offensive line standpoint, a little bit easier to get by with suboptimal guard play at times than it is on tackle. Last note I have, this is a big brain take. So sliding, I thought about this earlier in the game and I texted Weldon. If you have a bum ankle, wouldn't it actually make sense to slide head first? You're a baseball guy. Wouldn't that actually be safer? I know he's not going to do it, but I thought about that a couple of times. I'm like, damn, if that thing gets caught in some grass, this could get weird. I figured hot sliding head first might be the way to go. I've contemplated that for like two weeks. Yeah, I, I don't know, um, but I would think so for a couple different reasons. Now, you don't want to do it if you got a linebacker right in front of you because then he can hit you. So you want to avoid that because you're still alive if you, if you dive head first. But where you're being really, really passive and getting down, you would give yourself two extra yards at least, and you would potentially stay off that ankle. Because, yeah, I wondered the same thing. Like, if you slide wrong and it does catch, wouldn't you technically twist it? Maybe not. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe we need to ask somebody else who steals bases. But that, that, would, be my, that would be my guess there. Yeah, I, I, I thought that was actually a really weird thing, that in multiple fronts it could help you pending situation. I mean, again, you don't want to go into a linebacker. But at the same time, uh, you, you would – you would save yourself two to two and a half yards, I would think, by going head first. I asked Weldon about Dennis when, because da Weldon's made the point a couple of times where he's, he falls firmly in the camp of not knowing what to do and where to go. And I was just like, how does that happen? How does a guy that's been in this offense for two years, like, not know what to do and where to go? And Weldon made a good point because I was going to write about that today and I wanted to get some context. And he mentioned, like, this offense goes fast and it's a lot of quick thinking and moving on your feet. And I think it's a process. Is it, processing issue for kids at times and it can be tougher than it seems and I think that really showed up in the drive where Ole Miss had a chance to put the game away for all intents and purposes and Dennis has the false start after the Plumlee completion that turns a third and one into a third and six and then they do move the chains on that one but the very next series or set of downs not series you have the fourth and seven they're looking to go for it who knows if they'd actually gotten it but not everyone's set, and that seemed to fall on the receivers as well, and the fourth and 12 turns it into a punt, and Liberty gets the ball back. But it does seem like there is talent there with Dennis, right? The speed is real, and there's something there, but whether or not that's developed, I guess, will ultimately determine whether he's you know, a productive SEC receiver, a contributor out of necessity. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's just it's the drops, it's the lining up, but I, I do feel like it's true from the standpoint of if you – 
and I, I know we've made fun of the whole confidence thing because of the thing when he kind of snapped back at Neil and whatnot. But there is a certain amount of – if you can build some confidence in some areas, it carries over to other areas too. Because some of Danis' thing is it, it's just quick quick twitch thinking. And I'm not, I'm not calling him dumb or anything. My point is that you have to get the reps in that offense of moving that fast all the time where you, you don't have time to go, okay, this is the play. It's got to just be natural. And I think that just takes time and reps to get there. And some people pick it up quicker than others. And it's probably at least somewhat of the reason uh, that – the young wide receivers have not played. When you look at Burke Alter and, and Braylon Brown and those guys, I mean, I don't know. I mean, Kippen's clearly pissed off about it. But I would assume that some of it has to do with the tempo that they go, that you you can't be – there's no training wheels on this offense. You either know it or you don't. I, I missed this. Did Dennis clap back at Neil? Well, he didn't really pop back. Kippen had mentioned that he hoped that Dennis's uh, touchdown, wherever it was, maybe in Tuscaloosa, I forget, um, nineteen. With, no, no, no. This year. Oh but, no, uh, sorry. I think that was Jaden in nineteen. Anyway, I always get that mixed up. But yeah, what uh, what would help his confidence? So Neil, when Dennis came in, was like, "Hey, you know, Lane said that you, uh, you know, hopefully that'll carry over. You come back home, you can take that confidence." And Dennis like cut him off and was like, "I'm always confident." And okay. he was like, "Well, I mean, Lane said, not me. Lane, Lane said that, that that's all, all, all good." So. Spoken like someone who's confident, I guess. But you're right. Does that give you any worry about um, going when they do? You know, it's pretty obvious they're going to go get multiple guys in the portal. Just picking that up and that processing, maybe that's part of the evaluation. But does that give you any trepidation regarding when they do go get these guys in the portal? Is it a guarantee that they're going to pick things up? Um, I, I would think to some extent. I wonder if being in a college offense, though, helps and transfers make it easy. And I'm simply saying that because. Now I have no idea where he was today. He, I don't. He didn't have a target, but like Jacor Pearson has not had an issue with that, and he's That's his true. first year into the program. So I, I don't think it's necessarily a rule, per se, from that standpoint. Um, I, I wrote about this too as we as we look at you know Ole Miss is going to beat Vanderbilt. That will give them eight wins on the season. That's where a lot of people kind of had them. They had the Rebels eight and four, nine and three um, for pr- predictions going into the year. That also is a cash in Vegas. Seven and a half is the over under in Vegas for Ole Miss's season win total. So Barring a catastrophe against Vanderbilt, the over will hit in that standpoint. Um, but Ole Miss has two more opportunities to by far better their season. They have Texas A&M, they have Mississippi State. A win in one of those games would push them into a citrus bowl kind of bowl, um, I would assume. Two wins would still keep access bowls possible with a sugar bowl or something, or probably not sugar, but peach or something like that as they, as they move into January. Penalties, though. Ole Miss is committing a crazy number of penalties. They lead the country right now in penalties. Going into the day, going into the day, I had it here. Where is it? They are uh, committing 9.7 penalties per game today. I think it ended up being nine, unless they had a late one that I'm uh, that I'm missing. But I'm pretty sure that's what it uh, what it was. Hold on, I have it right here. Yeah, nine for 79 today. And tons, tons of them are pre-snaps. I mean, they jump off sides twice, I think, today. It, it, it's not necessarily – it's focus penalties to some extent. And this far into the season, you are what you are. I, and Lane says they go over it. They do everything they know to do to try to help it. But it's clearly just their personality from a penalty standpoint. But I just have a hard time believing that, frankly, unless they play a little cleaner, considering the injuries, they're going to have a really hard time beating one of those two teams in Maroon. Yeah, I think you're right, uh, and it might end up becoming the one on the road because that tends to compound things more on the road and then go to Starkville on Thanksgiving night, but I think you're right. I don't know if, if there's something to what we talked about with Dennis and the processing and going fast because I know it's not even close to, like, 
overly offensive on penalties, but it does seem like a lot of pre-snap offensive stuff, whether it's false starts and dumb stuff like that. So there may be a little bit of that to it as well, but yeah, they, they do commit a lot of penalties today, I believe. So that's seven wins that cements the program's first winning record since 2015. Does it not? That is correct. Yes. I mean, that's not completely insignificant. I know last year was a weird year, but I mean, you endured about a half decade or six years of some pretty lean time. So Certainly a, a good benchmark or a good – like you mentioned, they're at eight and four with the win over Vanderbilt. But if they were to lose the other two games, eight and four would weirdly feel like a disappointment considering kind of how how high they climbed in mid-October. But the irony of that, and I'm not arguing, it's just funny how this thing changes. Because, look, yes, if, they're, if they're healthy, they easily could be eight and one right now. They could have beaten Auburn, they, they, you know, in a full health team where they have the lucky season. Because, you know, they've had that lucky season before. Frankly, they had it a little bit last year. They had it in 2012. If they have a middle-of-the-road season, they still would have had a chance against Auburn. Probably wouldn't have beat Alabama. But on the other hand, the ball was in the air in the Arkansas game and the Tennessee game. They could just be at five right now with Vanderbilt getting them to six. I mean, that's that's kind of the psychotic nature of these, you know, what the expectation is versus what the expectation should be. And at the end of the day – it feels like for everybody to be pretty pleased. I mean, I get there was the people that wanted 11 and one. There's people that are going to want 10 and two. But if they found a way to split those other two, you finish nine and three, it's impossible to be critical of the season. Agree. And I think they could get to 10 and two. I'd like to see, honestly, can you get Drummond and Sanders fully healthy for next week? Because I think that changes a lot, whatever the offensive line looks like. I don't like hate their chances against Texas A&M, but to your point, all things considered between the injuries and the penalties, penciling in or even putting in pen two wins between state and Texas A&M feels a little ambitious, but you're right. Nine and three, it'd be hard to complain about that given where this program's come in a short amount of time. It's the last thing on the injuries though. It's weird. Yes. It's terrible offensively, right? I mean, Kiffin put the headline. I think he does this on purpose where he'll go on and say something he wants out there because then he's going to immediately tweet what aggregation site puts it Mm -hmm. out 10 minutes later. It's become a favorite hobby of his about the nine of 11 starters not practicing this week or dealing with injuries. With that said, they're about as healthy as you could hope. I mean, they are literally as healthy as you could hope for on the defensive side of the ball at this point in the year. What other than Austin Keys, what contributors are they missing? So as bad as it has been on offense, they have been fairly fortunate to not have serious injuries on defense Assuming Sam Williams is okay and able and to assuming play. Jalen Jones, uh, he, he went off the field at one point. I, that's right. That was in one I missed today. So you're right. So, but all things considered second week in November, no matter who they line up, if Sam Williams is out there, you got to feel pretty good about your health fortune or misfortune on that side of the ball this year. It just sucked on offense. Well, look, as long as two is on the field in any capacity, if you're going to pick one side or the other, it's still the offensive side you'd rather have the injuries on if it's got to be one or the other. Yeah, I mean, if you went into this thing where the defense didn't have nine of 11 starters, God help everybody. I mean, it would, it would be a disaster. So, you know, and I beat up on the defense a little bit in my, in my commentary. And I guess beat up's going to be strong, but they give up so many rushing yards, 284. You know that a and is going to run the ball, run the ball, run the ball next week. Now, you don't have to worry about the quarterback running as much as you do with Willis, so you can have some different schemes versus Calzada than, than you do him. But at the same time, at the end of the day, it's about points, and they only allowed points on the two drives, both coming out of the second half. It was such a critical fourth down stop 
when Durkin called a really good defensive play there on fourth down. When they got Willis out of the pocket, Mark Robinson kind of made him rush the throw. And then I don't remember if it was Finley or who it was, kind of knocked the ball away on the sidelines right there in front of Kippen. That was that was a critical fourth down play where they could have made that thing even more interesting. And I, I thought that I thought Freeze adjusted really well at the break. And then I thought Ole Miss adjusted really well like mid-third to kind of quell that a little bit. They had more guys. They, they looked better coach following those two possessions where, where uh, Liberty went down and scored. I keep wanting to call them Louisville all day, where Liberty went down and, uh, and scored those two times. They both start with L, and they both have quarterbacks that can run named Malik. So there are some similarities. And for a large part, I had to end up erasing this note because Willis got loose on twice on the last drive they had and then once right before. But for two and a half quarters, really mostly three quarters outside of like one drive, they did a nice job not only pressuring him, and it is easy when you're getting constant pressure, but the spy blitz thing they do predominantly with Otis Reese and Chance Campbell, it seems like, again, untrained eye here in terms of football mm-hmm. schematics, but that seems to be what it is. They did a good job when the pocket did break down. He didn't escape very often. There were a couple crucial moments, the third and 20, whatever that he converted, or second and 20, whatever it was. But for the most part, he wasn't able to extend plays and scramble or complete passes off script for most of the game. I thought they did a nice job of that in addition to actually getting home and sacking him. Yeah, you know, look, at the end of the day, you give me the entire stat line for Liberty pregame, I would be a little concerned by the rushing things, but I would be so much, if you're Ole Miss, so much happier with the other parts, especially the way they, you know, they, they took advantage of, of Liberty's bad offensive line. They don't always, they, they've not always done that in the past. They played an inferior opponent. They still have struggled a little bit from the standpoint of getting there. And I thought today, actually doing exactly what you're supposed to do against the inferior competition when you have a matchup. I thought that was a key to Ole Miss. I thought it was big. I thought it was something that showed a lot of growth for them in year two under this defense. I mean, there was there was really only the one negative. Now, it's a big negative, and it was just between the 20s. But for the most part, the defense was fine today. It really was not bad. You know, it's, it's kind of like everything else we're talking about. We knew that defense was better than a year ago. We didn't know how much. And I still don't think we need to be grading it on – some curve where if they're not a top 30 defense, they're a bad defense. It's a little more emphasized because of the offense being banged up because the offense isn't scoring the number of points that you kind of would have expected the last couple of weeks compared to, to what the expectation was. But at the same time, the defense is sort of still doing exactly what you wanted them to do or a little better. I mean, it's not, you can't change their expectations just because the offense has got some issues on this side of the ball. I mean, you know, I, I know like, you know, it's kind of the logic, too, and not to bring this into it or go in different sports for a second. It's kind of always like I understand what he's saying, but like Mike Bianco used to do this all the time. He'd go, well, you know, the days the pitching, the, the pitching's not there. You just got to hit more. And it's like, well, okay, but no, you got to pitch better. Like you can't automatically guarantee 12 runs just because the pitching sucks for the day. So I feel like that's kind of where you are with the defense, too. The expectation is not for this Ole Miss defense to give up only 13 points. That is a hell of a win against any team whatsoever. The expectation is them to be better than last year, keep you in the game, and frankly, just keep teams under 30. Yeah, and I think the the pieces that you thought would kind of make or break the defense have made them for a large part. When you get Jake Springer back, that clearly – I give Weldon shit for this sometimes, but he's, he mentioned the game before Springer came back that he's not Earl Thomas. Well, he might be Earl Thomas to this defense in some mm-hmm. respects because it put – Otis Reese back in a more natural position and everyone seems to play better. He's aggressive around the line of scrimmage. So they get back and he's played up to standard. And then Sam Williams has become a real passing threat, a pass rush threat. 
and Cedric Johnson is no slouch on the other side of him. He busted some double teams today, and he's been pretty good in spots. He'd probably like a little more consistently consistency, but I think it's those in, incremental improvements from a personnel standpoint. I know Williams and uh, Johnson have been there, but them becoming the players you'd hope they'd be, I think has led to a lot of that. But you're right. They're doing exactly what you would hope for them to do if Ole Miss was going to have success this year. Uh, to use a Mike Bianco word, they haven't been terrific at all times, but they've been pretty good for the most part. Yeah, they're giving them a chance. There hasn't been a single game this year. I would honestly include Alabama in this as well, where the defense has given them no chance, unless I'm missing something. I guess Arkansas counts, but they, I mean, they played a hundred and something plays. But for the most part, they've given the, the team a chance pretty much every time they've come on the field this year. That's all you could ask for. Auburn and AM still sitting there 3 3 right now. Also, this is an insane stat. So, Army and Air Force went under, and out of the last 50 games between service academies, 40 have gone under in Vegas. Well, they're I mean, all I, running the triple option that they face in practice every day, I guess, would make the. the I get it, but then lower the over the total. So, okay, yeah, I get it to an extent. I'd like to see what these totals are because, I mean, my God, it Army. It's 37 Navy. and a half today. How low so how, could you put one in the 20s? Because it feels like Army-Navy every year is 10-7. And whoever <laughs> scores the one touchdown has won the game. But is Vegas allowed to set an over-under at 17 in a service academy game? Like, I guess it's, at a certain point, you got to account for something weird happening. But that is an insane stat. That's crazy. Well, it, it's funny you said that because I didn't think about that side of it. I always thought, okay, you're just running the ball and the clock's running and that's why. But it's no. It's, it's that there's no damn surprise. The yeah. defense knows exactly what is coming. How do you make like what do you make what offensive adjustments does Army make to play Navy and vice versa? I don't think there's I don't think those exist. You have to throw it more, right? I guess. I mean but they can't throw. Right. So it's just, <laughs> hey, we hope we tackle better than them. Yeah. I mean, really. So anyway. Um, what's your early thought on AM next week? I think Ole Miss AM's just as schizophrenic as anybody else. They are. It's not a great matchup. Ole Miss seems to struggle with teams that are pretty physical in between the tackles and run the ball well. A&M's got a really good running back. They're a better version of Auburn in terms of running the ball for most of this year. I think they figured out some things on the offensive line. But like you mentioned, the quarterback is not a threat to run it. And so I think you can do some different things. But it's sort of – and I think Jake Springer will be a huge difference maker next week because, you know, when Ole Miss got a little bit better stopping the run against LSU and Tennessee, I don't think it's any coincidence that he was back and around the line of scrimmage, but it's fortunate that it's at home. If they can get fully Sanders fully back and Drummond can play, I like their chances a lot better. If they run out the offense, they ran out there today. I don't really love their chances to win. You think Sanders is the key? If you said one guy other than two is completely healthy, that's who you'd go with? I'd go Drummond, actually. I'd okay. just put him in the same boat just because Sanders has given it a go the last couple of weeks. But I'd say Drummond is the key. If you can get him out there, I would like their chances a lot better. Okay. That's uh, that's fair. So, let's hit a couple things off the field. Um, we'll start with social media. Uh and you've noticed over the last, I don't know how many months, I mean, a, a while that Ole Miss has gotten snarkier with their official accounts. Frankly, they had some of the more conservative ones for years um, as far as having a personality of its own in a lot of ways. Um, that has not really been the case over the uh, the football season, at least out of the football account, out of the, uh, the Ole Miss Athletics account um, from that standpoint. I mean, even the soccer account, when it went back at a Knoxville radio guy a couple of days ago, um, so, I put him in the wrong on that one. 
Oh, he was in the wrong. Yeah, he was Psychotic in the wrong behavior. That is so bizarre. We'll, I, we can hit that as an aside, but my God. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah, he, he, he went after the soccer team losing by trying to bring it back to Lane Kiffin and Tennessee football losing. It's like, yeah, you are showing just how ass hurt you are right now is what you're doing. Like, completely Look, as a guy still through, ass hurt. As a guy through some of his college years, maybe fired off a tweet or two at uh, after a couple of sodas that I maybe shouldn't have, that guy reeks of having about eight beers and being like, I'm about to fire off some great content that no one is going to like. That, I'm going to talk some soccer smack yeah. in a, in a meaningly, meaningless SEC tournament game. And try to incorporate a golf ball into it. That reeks of that guy had too many Coors Lights and probably should have put his phone down. Yeah, so Ole Miss after the game, and now they've, they've taken some shots in recent weeks a little bit. I mean, it's been funny stuff, but – I mean, they even went so far as having the, like, what was it, like the did Arkansas lose.com, the website a few weeks ago. Um, and then the play, the, play that jukebox deal. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of work going into that. So, two tweets after the game today. One being uh, Freeze in his hospital bed, and then the other one playing off of Freeze, his infamous tweet about if you do not slander this young man, and it said, you know, LU football at liberty.edu or whatever. With the the game score, um, they left them up for I don't know half an hour. Started catching flack in a number of directions on uh, on on Twitter about it, and then deleted both tweets. It's the deleting that actually bothers me more than anything Agreed. else. Like we can discuss whether they should have done it. We'll do that in a second. But if you're going to do it, you have to know what's coming. You have to know there's going to be blowback to some extent. And if you're going to be a snarky Twitter account, frankly, you can't care about any of that in two ways. You can't ever, unless you like literally like do something offensive and either one of these were offensive. If you, unless you're going to do that or you can't take it when you get it back at you. Those are the two things. You know, Cause if you're going to be a snarky social media account, when you lose, you're going to catch absolute hell and you've got to steer into the skid and make fun of yourself. And you got to be that guy too. But to me, I don't understand what the intent was if you were willing to let any of the pressure from a social media mob cause you to delete both tweets because what it also caused you to do is have insufficient social media following the game because when I looked a minute ago before we started the show, Ole Miss didn't even have a final score graphic up because they had deleted the final score graphic because it included the the, the tweet thing. So. They never even announced the final score if you went back to their social media account right now. You took the words out of my mouth with regard to you can't delete it because like you got to leave it up there unless you like you mentioned do something actually offensive. But this is this stuff cracks me up because it's the most non-serious thing possible. A team social media account or really just Twitter and social media in general that people take so seriously. Like it ruins people's day. Like you can almost like see people wanting to spike their iPhone off the ground. They're so mad in some of the replies, but it shouldn't be that serious. And so I think the the weakest part is deleting it. Like you said, if you're going to do it, own it because you didn't do anything offensive. You weren't commenting on anything that was actually serious. Again, varying degrees of seriousness here, but you kind of get where I'm going. So leave it up. You can't do it and then delete it. That's the weakest part about it. And isn't the point of that to make people mad? When you fired off the tweet, what did you think? That if you're going to get 100% uh, approval rating? That the whole point of it was to stir the pot. This type of stuff, like, I've gone back and forth on Twitter to, like, loathing it. And now I just find it humorous 
because it breeds tribalism. And then what tweets like this do is like stoke that tribalism and basically just pour gasoline on the fire, stir up the hornet's nest, whatever phrase you want to use. But yeah, you got to leave it up there. I mean, that's that's the worst part to me because again, it's not that serious. It also did lack a little bit of self-awareness. It definitely was tweeted by someone who was not around from 2013 to 2016 or whatever time frame you want to put on it because they botched the NCAA case at every turn. They enabled Freeze to become the problem that he became, and then you're going to tweet about it like, ha, look at this idiot. Oh, he used to work for us? What about that? So Yeah, him I, and he, he wasn't the lone gunman on the knoll. No, he was not. I mean, see the hostage video with Bjork gumballs and freeze like that. that they, they screwed up every aspect possible of it. And so, you know, if you want to say freeze was 70 percent of it, the, everyone else was 100, like very much 30 percent, if not more. So I thought it was funny. It lacks self-awareness, but taking it down is an even weaker move because it's not that serious. Again, what did you expect when you put it up? Like, you can't take the heat. Don't tweet it in the first place. Like, I, I saw Chris Butchin, who was on Freeze's staff uh, in multiple places. I, I saw a couple people get annoyed from that standpoint. What do you think was the impetus? Like, do you think it was a specific person that got annoyed? Do you think that a higher-up just said, hey, what are we doing? That, that, that doesn't make sense. Like, what what do you feel like actually caused it to be to be deleted? That's a good question. I don't know. It's probably someone that saw the backlash, like, from – I mean, honestly, if you really want to go there, it was former Free staffers and then – if you believe in the blue checkmark brigade, there was a lot of media people who were crapping on it. And for some reason, if you have some dumb checkmark by your name that apparently carries more weight, even though your opinion is just as valueless as every other idiot that opens a Twitter account, the Bozo69, whoever tweeted me earlier in the game, opinion counts just as much as the USA Today columnist does when it comes to commenting on whether an account should tweet or not. So maybe it was some of that, but I think it was just the probably immediate panic to getting some backlash that in the end doesn't matter at all. And someone just saying, all right, we'll delete this. Oh, I, don't I, think- see, I see like where the Woken Brigade came in. I didn't notice that till just now. Like yeah, Godfrey got mad about it. Like it's it, uh, for whatever reason, if you have some dumb check mark, which five years ago, all you had to do is fill out an application and they'd stick one by your name. Apparently that means your opinion on social media matters. Uh, I mean that you could apply that to another things, but in reality it doesn't. And you're just as dumb as everyone else that follows you. So like, Trying to act – anyway, I could get into a rant on this all day. Point being, I think that's probably the source of it. So the funny thing here is that – I'm reading it here. Yeah, like Godfrey comes on and goes, Ole Miss did everything they could to aid Freeze's hapless BS. Lie to everyone involved and claim ignorance after. Trying to turn this into a joke now shows nothing changes in Mississippi. Well, Stephen is being incredibly extreme and hyperbolic there. Um, yeah, because Vitter and Bjork and – uh, I mean, hell, if you want to use the current regime, they didn't tweet that. It's some it's some 20-something-year-old making, you know, entry-level job money trying to be funny. Like, that, that that's the part that bothers me, too. It's like taking it way too seriously. It's, it's a joke. Jesus. Yeah, and then uh, Wolken went with, are you serious? Absolutely classless. I didn't even know Wolken tweeted about it, but that is so on brand. And then he went with, um, he was not done. He, he, he used two tweets on it today. Went, went to it a second time. Whatever Hugh Freeze's faults were at Ole Miss, they were aided and abetted by an administration that defended him, lied for him, and allowed their program to be ruined for him. I don't even necessarily disagree with him, but do we really need two tweets? No. I mean, that goes back to the part where the Gannett columnist has a blue check mark by his name and thinks his opinions on all things anything actually matter. I mean, my God, have you seen Gannett's, like, profit margins? Like, it, it, it's dying. Like, 
congrats on working for Gannett. That's that doesn't make you an expert on anything. Like, and it's a college football Saturday. There'll be another thing in like forty five minutes. That doesn't do anything to him. I don't think he likes college football. But your point's still well stated. Yeah, like just give it a second. Somebody else will do something dumb before the college football days. Well, I guess my point is like Ole Miss deleting it. Like it'll move on. Like it's Penn a State will do something dumb at three o'clock. Like the okay. people that got mad about it take themselves too seriously. Is the bottom line when it comes. So you to think in some ways it was like weeding out the idiots. Like we're we're, we're going to do this and it's going to be bait to see who who feels really offended by everything that happens on the internet. Correct. I mean, my I, I'll, I'll admit I was like. When they tweeted it, I said, you know, this one, as I did the self-awareness thing a second ago, but I was like, that does kind of feel like piling on. But, you know, two seconds later, I'm like, who cares? It's Twitter. It's hilarious. Like, it, it, don't take things so seriously. And don't take yourself so seriously. And I'm talking to you, Gannett guy. So one of the things that I wanted to hit, I had written down, um, after the game, Lane again mentioned the, um, the lack of a full house from an attendance standpoint today. I, I'll be honest, by the end of the – or by maybe the end of the third – for the first quarter – it was a little better than I anticipated. I thought it might be really bad, but they had a lot of traffic issues getting into the stadium. It it ended up looking not good, but kind of exactly where I expected it to be after covering this program for a long time. And it has become a sore spot for Kiffin. Maybe he's simply doing it to try to get people in for next week, but that's going to be a full house. It's going to be a top 15, top 20 game, depending on A&M and playing Auburn right now in front of me. Um Attendance is not going to be a problem, and it's kind of college football in 2021. I don't know of any team in the country that is filling up their stadium for Austin P and Tulane and Liberty and maybe even Vanderbilt in a couple of weeks. We'll see what that looks like, even though it's a league game. Um, how much of it is real annoyance? How much of it is pushing fans to do better? How much of it is trying to set a different standard all the way around the program, and that's just part of it? And how much of it is, frankly, a real annoyance that he thinks is a negative to the actual program? I think the majority of it is him just trying to get people to go to games and increase awareness. And, you know, he's, I mean, he's constantly branding. He's very good at selling things. Uh, I mean, he sells himself on Twitter. He's reached a, a you want to bring up Twitter, like he's reached a point on Twitter where not many people can go where like everyone likes you uh, and everyone thinks like what he does is funny. So I think that's part, mostly branding. But I do think there is some real annoyance factor to it because if there wasn't, he wouldn't bring it up as frequently as he does. And look, is that going to be the reason he leaves for a job? Is he going to say, you know what? That Miami job sounds nice because uh, Ole Miss didn't fill up their stadium. No, but could it subconsciously enter his mind when he's, if he's offered a job two years down the road, that's marginally better than Ole Miss and would be one he'd have to think about. Is that something at the end could enter his mind where, okay, maybe I'll get a little bit better support. Maybe I think there's something real to that. I do think it bothers him. And if it can, it's hard to say if it continues because it's a problem across college football. And like you mentioned, no one's going to fill up their stadium for an 11 a.m. game against Liberty. I can't think of anyone that could do that right now. But I do think there's an element of realness to it. And I do think it's real annoyance that could be a very small factor that pushes him over the edge on a decision should that come in a couple of years. Now, I don't mistake that for me thinking that's going to be a priority for him when he leaves, but I do think there is an element of realness to it, but Ole Miss hasn't helped themselves out in that regard either. And I don't, we don't, I don't want to do a full breakdown of the Vaught Hemingway construction and how that stadium is built. I know you guys have talked about it. I've talked about it with you before, but the student section being in the crappiest area of the stadium in the sun 
doesn't help. The student section is already too big. The reason the other one looks so cool is because it was small. I remember when I was in school, you had to go get there early to make sure you got a seat and weren't standing sideways, you know, or on top of someone or standing in the aisle. There's too much space there. And so unless it's a massive game, it's not really going to fill up in the first place. And I don't understand the end zone club. Why would you want the lower level seating down near the end zone, like down in an area that's shown a lot, or at least seems like it's shown a decent bit, have an option where those people can go sit inside. So they didn't think that out well at all. And so I think, yes, Kiffin is annoyed by it, but I don't think Ole Miss has done themselves any favors with how they've put some of this luxury seating and student stuff together. It's very similar, frankly, to the annoyance from people at the pavilion that the cameras on on the, on, on the other side Great point. Where the, the student thing, section right? would be seen instead of the the, the courtside club, which is literally never full, even if it's Kentucky for a, you know for myriad reasons, um, you know. And that was the thing back in the day. Is, well, there's an SEC rule, and then Auburn actually turned theirs around. It's like, well, okay, if there's an SEC rule, then Auburn didn't follow it. So why are you not doing uh, doing the same thing? So just just saying, um, when when eighty percent of your blueprint to your coliseum is Auburn's too. The yeah, I mean, haven't they figured out what exemplary cooperation got them? They could bust a rule or two. Yeah, I don't, I don't think the SEC would go, nope, you're going to lose games because you put the cameras <laughs> on the opposite side of the uh, the, the court. It's probably going to be okay at the, uh, at the at the end of the day a little bit. Um, you got a lot of interest in State and Arkansas? Yeah, I'm actually fascinated by that game because I think State is playing much better football. I think Mike Leach is having like, – him having his team play better in the second half of the season is kind of his M.O., particularly early on in his tenure at places if you look at his past track record. And uh, to me, like if he, they go up there and win that, they're real, and that becomes – that changes how I look at the Egg Bowl. It's already changed a bit already. And then Arkansas, if you lose that coming off a bye, I kind of excuse most of – not most. I kind of understand the loss to Auburn because they've been on the road three weeks in a row. Mm-hmm. They go to the Arlington game – they go to Georgia and they go to Ole Miss. That's a brutal stretch, and they just kind of looked mentally and physically exhausted in that game. But if you lose this game to State coming off a bye and you look at what Arkansas did in the last seven games of last year, how real is this Sam Pittman thing, actually? That would be a huge indictment on him if he lost this game as much as one game can be. So, yeah, I am fascinated by that and a and uh, Auburn for different reasons, but two great games in the afternoon here. Because in some ways, it's it's how was Pittman doing in coin flips? Like, you're not going to judge him against Alabama and Georgia, and you're not going to give him a lot of credit when they beat Rice or somebody. But at the same time, you've got Arkansas, you've got Ole Miss, you've got Mississippi State, you've got Texas. You've got, you know, I guess well, they did get the win against Texas a and That was a huge win. But, yeah, I mean, every coach is judged by that middle tier as much as anything. I mean, if you lose the ones you're supposed to win, okay, yeah, you're going to get hammered. And you'll get extra credit for beating teams you aren't supposed to beat. But at the end of the day, almost all tenders are decided by what you do against teams like yourself. I mean, yeah, that's the expectations decides. were so low. You remember we had discussions at the beginning of 2020 as if Arkansas was going to go 0 and 10. And so those low expectations of Chad Morris, who shockingly, so he's the head coach at Allen now. Uh, and Allen had this great winning streak. And guess who blew it? Chad Morris. Oh, really? They had a streak and then he screwed it up? So Kyler Murray never lost a game. And I know that was a lot of years ago now, but they had some home winning streak that went to like 80 something games dating back to Kyler Murray. Cause Kyler Murray never lost a high school football game, which is just kind of a remarkable statistic. If you think about it, right. they lost it against Frisco Liberty or Denton, someone out there this year, but I wasn't assigned that game, but I wanted to, cause part of me wanted to ask if that was Bielema's fault. 
but anyway, yeah. So I don't even remember where I was going. I lost my train of thought there. But at those low expectations that Chad Morris there aren't going to be there forever. And I think you start to lose the benefit of the doubt when you lose games like this. That would be two losses in a row at home, SEC losses in very winnable games. Uh, 3-3 still now, Auburn and A&M. What? It really is just dependent to me on which A&M shows up. I mean, kind of last if we close. I mean, I know we're beating a little bit of a dead horse, but I'm watching this game, and it's fine. I mean, Auburn has kind of dictated possession if it was a, if it was like a soccer match for the most part. I mean, they've, they've controlled things, but it's still sitting here 3-3. Also, A&M is a completely different team away from home sometimes. They are, and then they're always good for one home stinker. That is transition between coaching staffs. Them losing to State makes absolutely no sense. Um, but, yeah, you're right. It is, it is kind of which A&M team shows up. It was a little bit of that last week with Auburn in the sense that is this Bo Nix resurgence real? Like, is he going to continue this good play? I, I kind of feel like that's similar as, as regard to A&M's entire team. Um, but I think at the end of the day, it does come down to the quarterback play because they beat Alabama because Zach Calzada had the game of his life and haven't really been tested since. What, they went to Missouri and then somewhere else in between? It's so, mm-hmm. like there hasn't been a huge – a lot of tests in between there. So – I, I like Ole Miss's chances because it's an Oxford. I think getting that type of quarterback on the road is helpful. And if you have some early success against the run, that that really now you're talking about, okay, you got a chance to really win this game and probably create a little bit of separation. So I don't hate their chances. It's just a bad matchup. But I also like the fact that they have a crappy quarterback on the road. It's weird. Uh, um, Grant Tisdale, actually, former Ole Miss quarterback, replaced Kyler Murray at Allen when he, uh, when he graduated. Really? He was the next quarterback at Allen. Yeah. They have a nicer stadium than Vanderbilt, in case you were wondering. They absolutely do. Are they the only people that play there? Is it one of those like independent school district things, or is it just Allen? I believe that one is just Allen. So the more common ones is the independent school district stadiums where multiple teams play there. I I don't want to say this for sure, but I believe that one is just Allen. So we'll see. Fascinating matchup next week. I mean, don't you think if they win next week, they're going 10 and 2? I know jumping the shark on the egg bowl is unwise, but this to me seems the biggest obstacle. It, I think it is. My only thing that gives me pause is the road home thing. And then also because of how loud it can be with those cowbells, um, offensive line shakeups, the communication they've had a hard time with. I, you just wonder if there's an adjustment period when they go on the road. You get Tuscaloosa and Knoxville as other options, so I know they've been through it. But at the same time, I mean, is it Cunningham out there? Is Amada playing guard? I mean, there's so much shuffling that I do worry a little bit of, from an offensive line standpoint in that in that game potentially. Um, also, kind of last thing, week. we'll we'll, uh, we'll monitor this Purdue up on Michigan State, twenty-one to seven right now. That was a really really. There's a de- I hate the word trap game. We used to make fun of it on radio, but you come off that gigantic win over Michigan and you've got to go to this frisky Purdue team the next week. That that screams trap game. I think they probably come out and win it, but it wouldn't stun me if they lost. That'd be great news for Cincinnati. Um, also in the Florida game tonight, I'm seeing this, uh, this tweet here, Gators quarterback Anthony Richardson feeling well, but expected to be emergency quarterback only at South Carolina. Not uh, not expected to uh, to play after suffering a concussion. I thought this game was in Gainesville and Neil's picks. I don't think it changes my pick, but man, if that game gets weird, so there's Florida beat writers are adamant that Mullen's getting a 2022. 
I'm not so sure that's the case as it stands right now, but let him lose one of these last four. And then it's like, okay, where are you actually going here? Yeah, I feel like, well, that's a good point. I mean, I mean, I feel like to keep his current gig, he has to win these last four. Yeah. I mean, what, imagine if he loses this version of Florida state. People don't like any, that. I mean, what's the toughest game he has left? They get, they, it honestly might be at Missouri. I'm pretty sure they go at a, they go to this game tonight on the road. I think they get the SEC bye against, you know, Florida Tech or whomever it is. I could be wrong about that. Then they go at Missouri, and then they play Florida State. I guess you could – it's a coin toss between a bad Missouri team and FSU is your toughest games. I'm really pissed off at Georgia, by the way. I'm not covering that game today. They allowed the late field goal that allowed Missouri to cover. I – Double jinxed it, double jinxed it. I guess that counts as a quadruple jinx. I wrote in Neil's picks, normally my dumb brain would say too many points, one touchdown could cover this, but I'm not going to do that, and I'm going to pick Georgia. And the equivalent of one touchdown covered it. So congrats yeah, to 43 me. 43-6 to six Bulldogs. Uh, Missouri kicking a field goal for whatever the hell that was worth in the, uh, in the fourth quarter to, to lose by 37 instead of 40. The line was 39. Do you think Elijah Drinkowitz knew that Missouri hadn't covered a spread this year? And he's like, you know what? We're going to get one in the win column because good teams win, great teams cover. I do, actually. I, I think Drinkowitz that's absolutely fascinating. the line. I do. Yeah, 100%. That, that's exactly where I'm at. So, anyway, Ole Miss uh, wins 27-13, to 13, knocking off Liberty to move to 7-2 and two on the season. A&M up next week, next Saturday night from Bald Hemingway Stadium. We'll have a normal day. From a game day standpoint, we'll talk to Brian, we'll talk to Jeffrey, Neil, and I'll be back taking your calls as well. So uh, plenty of content up at rebelgrove.com, and we'll talk to you again very, very, very soon. For Brian, I'm Chase. Take care. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash blue wire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.